Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Swaridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 19, where we'll be discussing lines 58 to 9 on the Shieldhau. We've just finished the Tverhau section, and we're moving on to the next Master Cut. We're also recording this episode immediately after Master the last... Cut. We're moving on to the next super top secret hidden hue section. (laughs) (laughs) We're recording this episode immediately after the last one, so we haven't been up to much. Johanna, could you give us the German for this section, though? Yeah. Okay. Schiller ein bricht, was Büffel schlecht oder sticht. Wer wechselt raut, Schiller daraus ihn beraubt. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us Harry's translation? The Schiller will break, cuts and thrusts peasants make. The Schiller endangers, who threatens the changer. Thank you very much. So first of all, this is the, the Schiller or the, the Schielhau or Johanna, how would you pronounce it? Schielhau. Schielhau. Brilliant. Schielhau. And what does that mean? Huh. Or how would we <laughs> translate it? I I saw a lot of different translations. I think my favorite one is the cockeyed cud. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one too. I've been trying to say it like ten times in a row, and it's really difficult for me. <laughs> All right. So shield how means shield or shield means a couple of things. Right, it means squint, which is what we all key on, but it also means cross-eyed, and lots of variations on that, of sort of having a problem with your eyes versus just squinting. I mean, even in English, squint-eyed used to be synonymous with cross-eyed. I think we don't say that anymore. Like having a lazy eye, not like being super racist. Yeah. Having various kinds of eye problems were just characterized as having squint eyes or squinty eyes. Um, although that is passe now. We don't say that anymore. Uh, it's also probably unkind. But it's, it's so that kind of root also exists in English. And in German, it's especially tricky because there's lots of visual puns in the gloss that we'll get to, which require you to have multiple meanings for whatever word you translate Schiller as. And squint doesn't quite work with all of them. I think that's where cockeye comes from, because it kind of works, but not that well. I like squint because I like to say squinter. It's easy to say. How about askew? Would that work? Yeah, I mean, looking askance also, I think, is is in the uh, family of shield or shilin. I've seen it proposed at least once that the route should be like Schilthau instead. Yeah, so York Wilhelm Hutter uses Schilt instead of Schiel. So he has a T. So we say Schiel, but what the actual German text says is S-C-H-I-L and leaves the E out, so it's Schill. He doesn't add a T, he adds a C-H. He has like a Schilthau. There's a T in there, at least one version. Let me let me pull up a table and look. But it's possible. It's sure it's Unless it's not Hooder and I'm wrong. Okay, so he says Schiltau in the heading and he says Schilch in the 
text of the Zettel. And what what are you looking at? His I'm looking, are you looking at, at the Munich and the Augsburg. Are you looking at his Nikolaus or are you looking at uh, the title that comes before the Nicholas. Oh. The big list of the title. But anyway, it's also in the Wolfenbüttel manuscript from 1460s. It's Schilt. Although it has both Scheller and Schilt in different verses. Sure. So it's possible that the original meaning of this might have been the shield cut. Although given how much of visual puns we have in it, I think that meeting was abandoned long before we got the text that we have, if it was ever there. But because it, it's not actually written as shield, it's written as shill, it sort of naturally turns into shilt, depending on which letter you think is missing. Hmm. I still and this can't is, find where in ZWH. What's that? I still can't find where in uh, Yorkville home. Uh, well, let me get you a page citation. 44 <laughs> recto in the in the Munich manuscript, 3711. Die Ausrichtung vom Schildhau. This okay. is what cutting edge HEMA research sounds like, everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, this probably is much more interesting yeah, to I look at on the screen than to hear. I see LCHR. All right, don't worry about it. Don't, let's move on. Let's move on. There's more okay. important stuff about okay. this. So, so if we're happy with this cut being the the squinter, I like the cockeye. Yeah, <laughs> all right, the cockeye. Because right. so, so, I, I always so say squinter. I never call it the shield how anymore. Uh, um, the cockeye on breaks what the buffalo cuts or thrusts. All right. So also one, one other note on the on translation. Paulus Hector translates it. Kendra says as Strabonibus. Which has similar meanings. I think it's also lemus oculus, isn't it? So he doesn't have a consistent term for it, but it also includes the way they translated it, which was the side eye, which nice. is also a fun uh, way of thinking about it. That, that, that's literally what lemus oculus is. But yeah, giving so looking at someone askance or giving them the old side eye. Um, but anyway, so so it breaks whatever this buffalo does. The poofle, the buffle. B and P are basically the same letter. Yeah. <laughs> so so just quickly, does this word refer to like an oxen or like a bison type thing? Because there's still wild bison in Poland, aren't there? So I imagine they'll be roaming around Germany at this point. <laughs> Anyone know? Isn't bison the American version? Are there bison in Europe? I think it would be a basically a buffalo uh, off the top of my like head. A water buffalo? Um, you still have the no, 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 no. It's like a. It looks like a. Uh, looks more like a, a bison than don't, a water don't, buffalo. Don't we say a vicent or a vicent? I think so. <laughs> you still That's have buffalo European, in. Um, uh, yeah, you still. So it might be the European bison. I'm always slightly dubious on the difference between the various types of these animals. It's probably not the same as an ox because we have a different word for ox, i.e., ox. Um, yeah, that is that is that was definitely known by the by the writers, wasn't it? I, I think the idea behind this is that it's you know it's a big lumbering animal that charges it's super strong and doesn't, and doesn't use a lot of uh, you know there's not much subtlety to it, no matter what animal it is. It's right further on in Danzig, you get the definition that it's someone who 
fences without fooling. Yeah, I think probably the most interesting question here is what does a buffal mean in the terms of the gloss? Yeah, well, uh, Ringek is the only one who defines it here. Do you want to take that, T? Sure. Uh, Ringek here says somebody who acquires victory with power. Like, you know, someone who wins not by, or implicitly someone who wins not by, like, clever techniques or setups, but by being very strong and fast and physically powerful. You might call it an attribute fencer in that sense. Someone who, cool. you know, is quick and strong and athletic and just hits you, despite the fact you know all the cool moves and are more technical and are going to win the sexy fencing prize. Yeah. So, so they're not relying on, later on, we have that they're not relying on feeling or art. Yeah, that's in Danzig in the Nachrisen section, I believe. Yeah, and, and love. And love. Um, it's uh, it's worth pointing out explicitly that there's no indication that a buffalo is someone or a buffalo is someone who's unskilled, right? We're not yeah. talking about peasants here, although three two two seven a says that we are, but we're not discussing that in this class. It's someone who could be quite skilled, but they're also powerful and don't feel like they need to use any of that fancy eyes open techniques with fooling. They just know they can walk in and beat you with strength and speed. Um, yeah. And there are certainly a lot of really, really good fencers in the world who have that mindset, especially in tournaments. So it's not like you're—it's not like we're talking about people who are untrained. It's just people who use their training in a particular way. Yeah, I kind of—I guess we'll talk more about Buffel when we get to Nakaisen and the section on it. But just real quick, I kind of think of the Buffel versus the Master as what's his name. Uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, understanding fencing, he has the warrior versus the technician. Mm. And the warrior is kind of a person who all they care about is, is results and, you know, they'll get get strong and, you know, get the point at any cost. And the technician is the person who cares more about uh, fencing in a in a more beautiful technical way that they can be proud of. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Either of them is going to win any particular match, but just a different mindset. And in particular, yeah. at the low level, the warrior will probably win the matches. Right, yeah. So, yeah, because uh, technical fencing is hard to transfer up to more stressful situations. Whereas doing simple movements and relying on your athleticism um, is very easy to transfer into. Uh, higher pressure situations. That's a way of fencing that gets more effective with uh, adrenaline, not less effective. So if you are a really technical fencer and you're a beginner and you're losing tournament matches, don't get discouraged. Just keep trying and working hard and eventually you'll get there. Or get swollen smash. Or that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, On the note of of someone who doesn't use Fulin, one of the things that the shield house is particularly good at is disrupting many combination strikes of the sort of eyes closed techniques where you're planning to come in with two or three strikes in a row. The shield how can get in there and, and break your pattern. Um, and that hmm. seems like it might be what they actually intended when they said that it's useful against the buffle. I feel like at this point we should probably talk about what the shield how is. Yeah. Shall I, shall I read the gloss? At this point, yes, that is a lot of words. All right, here we go. 
Gloss. Know that the side-eye or the cockeyed strike is a good, strange, and earnest piece which goes ahead with inverted sword and disrupts the hewing and stabbing of the buffalo, one who acquires victory through power, and also the guard that is called the plough. There are many masters of the sword around who know nothing to say of this hue. Here, remember how one shall hew the squinter. Remember, when you approach him with your onset, set your left foot before and hold your sword on your right shoulder. If he hews in towards your head from above his right side, then twist your sword and spring ahead with your right foot, and hew from your right long against his hew into the weak of his sword, with the short edge out sorry, with arms outstretched over his sword in above towards his face or breast, or strike him upon his head or right shoulder. So you strike and displace with each other and hit him with the hew. If he is clever and withholds his sword in the strike and wants to change through below your sword, then let the long point shoot him before you with the hue and remain with long arms with the point before his face or breast so that he may not harm you nor change through below. Another. When you stand against him and hold your sword on your right shoulder, if he stands against you in the guard of the plough and threatens to stab you underneath, then hew him long with the glancer in above with the short edge and shoot him the point long in towards the face or breast, so you may not so he may not reach you below with the stab. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So there's a a lot to unpack there. We're gonna take that stuff about if he tries to change through outreaching him or whatever, we're gonna put that to one side for a minute. And not think about that because that makes my brain hurt. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to stick with so there's this powerful fencer trying to hit you from above on their right side, and you do this inverted hand cut against them. All right, so we're back to the fair camera, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn it. We just. <laughs> so, so, key things about this you're, you're doing it with the, the short edge from your right side. Uh, you're springing ahead with your right foot. That's only a Leo, and I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. Come uh, on. What? How dare you say that doesn't work? Well, it's not. It's not the fact. Okay, so there's two things in the <laughs> that are that are kind of different from the other ones. One is the spring, and the second is that he targets the face or the chest. So the other one, I think, Donzig targets the the head, and uh, Ringek targets the shoulder. So, right shoulder, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, so if you're doing either of those, then a jump forward is reasonable. But if you're targeting the face or chest, a jump forward while they're attacking you with an with a strike, and also presumably jumping towards you, it's not as reasonable. <laughs> the distance like collapses off the chance. So, so you're saying you have to pick one: either try to thrust him or leap forward, not both. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I mean, I think it's I think it's possible to do what Lev says, but I think it's situational and difficult, and it's you're much more likely to get the stab if you don't do any step at all and just do this. Is, is there any way that we could interpret spring ahead as spring backwards? Because that was <laughs> the problem right there. I don't think you'd want to do a spring. Well, I don't know the way I do it. You wouldn't want to do a spring backwards anyway. But yeah, well, you don't so invert a spring, right? You. You spring ahead inverted. So so you do this technique both as a counter-attack against somebody, or is it jumping before them? There's an attack on prep. Let's go back and look at the text. Uh, 
It is not clear whether it should be considered a counterattack or an attack on prep. Would be my answer. No, no, if he hews towards your head, then hew against his hew. Cool, counterattack. He's outrunning his hew or something, so maybe it's on prep. But yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then you can also do it against somebody chilling around in plow. And at this point, it means the plow that we all think of as plow, doesn't it? Yes. It's not when they start switching up yard names. Good. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that, unlike the inverter, this is a pretty high percentage technique at certain points in our fencing, isn't it? This is like the best move ever. It breaks everything um, in all of fencing. <laughs> I have a, I have a theory that I can't tell if he's being serious or not. I'm mostly being serious. You can make a nearly complete fencing system entirely out of the shield how. I, I have a theory that everybody who fences for a while eventually goes through a shield how phase, or everybody who does KDF at least goes through a shield how phase where they think that the shield how is the best thing ever, and they use it all the time to the exclusion of everything else, and it works pretty yeah. well. And then. They get past the shield how phase and they forget how to do a shield how, and then maybe they find it again eventually, and now they can. Yeah, I I went through my shield how phase maybe four years ago, and now I've lost my mojo and I just can't land it. Right. Well, you start doing it again. And then... I'll confess at this point that I hate the shield how, and I I, right. I I don't hate it, but I don't quite understand why it's needed as compared to every other attack that we have. That's that's the thing is it's it's hard to answer that question because I don't know if I can really um, physically explain why it's needed. Like I can tell you what the Zornhau is good for, and I can tell you what the Krumphau is good for, even the Tverhau. But when I get the Shielhau, and it's like, yeah, it can do some stuff. Like it's hmm. an alternative to the other things we already know. But I don't know how you'd choose one or the other, really. So I have a couple of thoughts on that, but I might bring them up towards the end of the episode instead. Um, I think probably the most interesting thing physically about the shield is the inverted hand action. Like, why are you turning over your hand and why does that make it like magically better at solving this wide variety of random problems? Can I answer that? Sure. Sweet. So if somebody's going to powerfully attack against you or thrusting against you, this version, well, you're still trying to bind on their weak, so you're still trying to get a strength, a leverage advantage that way. But what you're also doing is by, is it pronating or supinating your hand? Always forget the difference. By twisting your hand out. Supinating, nails up. Yeah, you're, you're effectively locking your hand in that position so that it's really hard to, to push against it. So you're, you're, not, you're not trying to use the, the way that your wrist pivots to push against the bind. Um, you're you're in a, a more mechanically stronger position. Yeah, I think that, that definitely or is that's probably or am I just saying biomechanics into a microphone a lot? Um like that's definitely part of it, I think. Anton Kohotovich has an interesting model which he calls the Fulinless Shielhau, where he uses the like the the way the sword is turning over uh during the action as the hand goes into supination to make the cut come very, very vertically. And one of his points for that is that it means that the exact amount of initial pressure put into the the other person's action doesn't affect where your cut ends up side to side. The yeah. the supinator hand sort of naturally stops at a full extension. It doesn't really continue down in the same way. Uh, and the 
because the cut's on a very vertical path, it's less affected, like the targeting of your point is less affected, where your point ends up is less affected by the amount of pressure that their sword has. Whereas if you just cut directly against their cut, exactly where your sword is depends on how hard they're pushing, which is an interesting little, it's an interesting idea, and it seems to work pretty well. Uh, the Slovaks are certainly really good at the shield. Yeah, I, I, I learned mine from Anton on holiday years ago. Um, after not being able to make it work for for years, suddenly, fifteen minutes with Anton and bam, it's enough to yeah. to win some medals. <laughs> Amazing. So, if you look at Danzig and Ringek as your sources, then you're trying to cut with the Shieldhau, correctly? Correct. So, where does your power generation come from in the middle of this weird, twisty action? Your hips. How are you training your hips to it? Are you doing it the same way as like a Tsornhau, or are you relying on them in a different fashion? I would basically treat it as being pretty much the same as a Krump. I mostly do it standing still, because there's no footwork in Ringneck for this action, and I don't like stepping in counterattacks if I don't have to. And then it's driven off a hip twist, uh, the arms coming down, and the... Um, the way the hips are twisting kind of pulls the backhand back, which snaps the sword down. Mm. Um, there is a video by, I think it was MKDF at the time, where uh, it's hosted by Jake Norwood, and he shows this very well, the um, the power generation of the Shielhau, I feel. It's like one of the best instructional videos I've ever seen. It's, you talking uh, about the modern glass video? Yeah. One that they were definitely not going to make one video and then stop, and they made one video and stopped. They <laughs> say um, in the video itself. So the reason why I ask it is I've learned two different ways of doing it, and I don't really like either of them that much. But one of them is the using the your left hip to pull your pommel backwards to snap the cut, and the other one is the knife version where you begin like a diagonal cut, um, and it's only when you have your sword is in front of you that you twist short edge forward and sort of use angular momentum to preserve the power of the initial snap forward. And they both work okay, but I've never been really happy with them. But you're all agreeing about the using the hip to pull the, to snap the sword forward. I wouldn't quite describe it as snapping the sword forward. Has Carl Bolli from uh, CKDF has a mechanic he showed me a few years back where you essentially um, apply like tension across the hilt of your sword so you take your two hands and you pull them in opposite directions along the hilt of your sword like you're trying to rip the pommel off. <laughs> like, it sounds like a crazy idea, but like if you do that action, you'll get this structure, right? And it sort of, it locks up your shoulder, it, it locks up the structure of your upper body, and it generates quite a lot of snap. It's a really nice thing to put into Terhau. And you can sort of do that kind of action driven by the rotation of your body. So the rotation kind of pushes your front hand forward and pulls your back hand backwards as your hands are coming down and that locks the whole structure into place and snaps everything down. It doesn't, it won't cut through like that. You can get through like one tatami mat with it, but you don't get a long cutting arc, but it generates a lot of snap around the point it's going to be impacting like sword or shoulder or both. Enough to make a highest bleeding head wound? I would <laughs> uh, expect so. It's all that matters. So, well, next time Carl comes to visit, I'll have to have him show me that. It works really well with having disc or ball pommels on your sword, by the way, which is why all my custom fetters have those pommels. Hmm. Yeah, same. 
Um, you I've can. Never, I've never really had trouble cutting a tatami. Well, I mean, single mats. I've never had trouble cutting one with a shield how. Just cutting a single mat with a shield how isn't exactly like cutting a single mat shouldn't be hard, right? Right. But you I mean, can I just kind of drop the sword on the mat and it's cut. Well, as long as your edge is facing the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right. So, having put aside all that stuff about changing through earlier, let's bring it back into the conversation. <laughs> so, the shield how apparently also stops them from disengaging underneath. Is it explicitly underneath? It stops them from disengaging your counterattack. Or does it? Uh, I believe it is. Uh, the dessert, if he is clever and withholds his sword in the strike and wants to change through below your sword. Yeah, that's underneath. Yeah, I think it always is. It says below your... in Danzig. Yeah. Then let the long point shoot him before you with a hue and remain in long arms with the point before his face or breast so that he may not harm you nor change through below. So this is the third benefit of supination, basically. Sorry, you were saying something, Steve? I was just going to say, I think that this is an, just an application of the uh, common lesson, uh, you nearing what you want, because it says then, you know, cut with the point in front of his face or chest so he can't change through below, so he must parry you. So it might be another one of those situations where if he doesn't parry you, then he'll get stabbed in the face, like we talked about last episode. Yeah, but, that's a nice parallel. Yeah, so it, it. it's interesting to me for two reasons. One of which is that Joachim Meyer explicitly lists changing through as the basic counter to the Shielhau, and then talks about this as being the counter to the counter. Um, so he advises trying to change through against someone who likes to use the Shielhau in case they don't get this um, the thrust in. Uh, but also, this sort of fits with the idea of the buffalo as the person who likes doing his eyes closed combinations. You know, the strike with the intent to change through before you ever begin your strike is a classic combination that this apparently breaks. I mean, cutting and changing through is a really common thing that you see in our modern game. Yeah, as far as how changing through being a counter to this, I think it depends how you throw your shield how. So you can throw it Hi, and I saw this um, watching the Dutch Lions Cup digital entrance. Some people yeah. threw a high shield how, and some people threw like a hands high shield how ending in like an ox like situation, and some people threw um, a lower shield how ending in a more uh, long position. I personally like the uh, the lower shield how. What? I, I do. <laughs> Sometimes the high is necessary. If they're really attacking high, you might have to raise up but I like the low way better, and I think that's probably going to be the one that's going to counter your your disengager. I think my shield is always at, at shoulder height. Yeah, I think that's what Steve means by low here. He means uh, shoulder height, not like overhead. Because I, I saw some videos where they had really, really low shield house, like in, in, in left um, fluke. The end of the yeah, there's the, flu the fluke shield house, thing I've seen. What? I've, I've never seen it before. <laughs> Ironically, I think the first person I saw do that came from a club called Ox. <laughs> so the 
the wisdom that I received from Anton K. He's probably revised his interpretation a lot since this was to, to do a shield how and have your hands end at the same height as theirs. So if they're in plow, your shield how ends low so that they can't disengage. If they're high up, if they're in from tag, then shield how high. I mean, it's not in the text, but it's a take. Um, I was going to say something else, which I think comes into here is the the supinated or inverted hand, where you have the nails up. If you try standing in like a long point position, and then you switch your you turn your sword over to supinate it, what you'll find is you gain an extra couple of inches of reach. Like if you if you go try it right now against a wall, right with a sword, um, you'll be, and like you stand in a sort of shield how position as fully extended as you can get at shoulder height, uh, with the the hand up and touch the point to the wall, and you come back to a normal long point, you'll lose a couple of inches of distance. So from the perspective of a kind of outreaching action, the inverted hand gives you a little bit of extra margin of error on that sort of outreaching to give you space to stay safe below. That's cool. Motsu is saying that inverted has a longer reach than normal long point. Yes. Um, I think that I, I, would, I would amend that a little bit. I, I think that you can get the same kind of reach um, with a you know non-inverted hand, but it for it it forces you to have to break your wrist structure a little bit. Yes, no, that's true. Um, the basically by inverting, you can have the hilt come parallel to your forearm instead of dropping under it. And if you want to, having the hilt parallel to your forearm gives you the longest reach because the blade sticks straight out from your forearm, straight forward. And if you want to do that with a normal grip, you have to break your wrist. All right, I'm going to give two other mild theories as to why it might be changing through. Three other, so one of them. Uh, your sword's pretty vertical, so that your hands are low, so it's difficult for them to disengage underneath. You're already locking out that line. Two, uh, you're hitting higher than they'll hit if they disengage below, so you win by having the higher hit. And Three, you've counterattacked, but they've done a compound attack, so you have right of way. <laughs> the third one's definitely the most correct. <laughs> yeah, what you the fourth thing which you can end up with, especially if you're aiming at the shoulder, um, somebody who's planning to change through will often like show the attack but hold their entry a little bit. So if you've aimed at the shoulder, you're probably going to end up landing as a thrust. Um, and if you put a thrust in on the right shoulder, you can physically stop somebody from moving forward and reaching. Yeah, proper um, especially if style. Right. Uh, but like you know, you pin, if you pin, and in particular if you pin the lead shoulder, uh, it becomes very very hard for somebody to do really anything with their sword that's going to reach you. I mean, you can throw people with a shield, how? Huh? You can. I watched you do that once. It was a good laugh. <laughs> Pity you lost the exchange. What did you do? I, I stabbed someone and they fell over. <laughs> Mike mistells it slightly. He, uh, he stabbed someone with a shield howl. Uh, the blade bent like clean in half. Um, <sighs> and then Mike landed because he was on a sort of springing explosive step. Uh, the blade straightened back out and it catapulted the person across the room. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, we were playing like a fencing version of that uh, that hole in the ground game from uh, Ours World's Wrestling. So the other person had to try and keep their 
their weight in place and couldn't <laughs> couldn't withdraw or retreat. <laughs> but, um, it was a good time. Uh, but yeah, it's a uh, like that sort of adding applying pressure, or if you're going to do a stop thrust, targeting that point just inside the in the right shoulder area is a really really effective place to physically stop somebody from trying to reach you. Yeah, if you do uh, if you do levs where you're springing forward with a step, then you'll be so close that it's impossible for them to change through because they can't physically fit their sword underneath or between both of you. <laughs> That's also true. Are we done with the physical action? Because I have a couple of yes. like general questions about the shield I'd be interested in opinions on. Go, ahead. Go for it. So there's a really interesting line at the beginning of a lot of this stuff, um, like from uh, Danzig. Squinter counters the guard called the plow, is a rare cut, blah blah. Uh, therefore, many masters of the sword know nothing to say about this hue. Um, and you see the same phrase in Lev. What does that mean? Why is it this like secret thing people don't know? I mean, one interesting thing that occurred to me is that the other thing that this cut does is it counters the noblest and best guard which is, you know, the guard of the master. And then we have Shielhau, which even masters don't know. So there's a funny textual connection, which doesn't answer the wider question, but it might, it might just be hyperbole in that it's the expressing that it's the guard that breaks long point. In addition to also breaking the buffalo. So you mm -hmm. have the two types of fencers, the master and the buffalo. This breaks both of them. And also masters don't know anything about it. And also, it doesn't appear in a lot of other fencing arts that have a lot of analogs to KDF. Like, a lot of people I know who've studied at least a handful of Japanese sword arts don't do short edge actions for the obvious reason that we don't have a short edge. But they, these, this sort of twisting cut is not part of the repertoire, so it could be... And you also don't see it in Fiore. And I don't think you see it in any of the Iberian greatsword stuff either, so it's... a uh, Strange cut that's not part of a lot of sword to arts. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not instinct. Apparently, yeah. I think that a lot of people wouldn't think to do with a sword in the first place. It's an action that I've basically never really seen. Like, you see a short edge hooking cut from the left side, a sword's how kind of action. That turns up a fair bit in a lot of sources. But the shield type cut where you do that same action from the right shoulder doesn't really show up in anything apart from the Lichtenauer influence sources. So, this could be Lichtenauer's. Only contribution to the art is he made up this cut that works great. Yeah, I sometimes say that Lichtenauer is 5.88% special for this reason. <laughs> I think that this, it doesn't seem like it should be a good idea to like turn the short edge and cut with it against someone else's cut or whatever. It seems like it's a waste of time. Like, why would you turn the short edge? And yet it works. So. Well, it doesn't say anything about putting your thumb on the flat of the blade in the actual text, does it? No. Uh, no. Good. Another point towards Michael's hating of that interpretation. <laughs> that I still teach, that I still do. If not with yeah. the thumb grip, how do you do this then? Uh, well, you don't need to put it on the blade specifically, right? Like, you, don't, you can, still, you can so sort you of don't. thumb along the handle. Right, but you still end up in, like, the you know th theoretical thumb grip 
even if you're not. I think the thing the thumb on your for, for me, it's the pushing the pad of your thumb into the the shield. The specific thing Mike hates is like forming that triangle brace with your thumb, right? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. All right, let me just have a, a quick search in Valestine, see if the shield house in there. It's not. Yeah. Oh, oh nice. while I um uh, while I think of it. On the subject of beating chaining through, one thing I forgot is that Anton's kind of foolinless version also does an interesting thing here, which is a lot of the time if you're expecting somebody to give you a powerful cut and you try to counter cut against it, um, if you don't get a blade engagement, your point's gonna whip off to the side. Um like that's a really common action you can see happen uh, all the time uh, in fencing. If fencer, like if right fencer threatens a powerful cut, left fencer prepares to counter cut, and right fencer pulls the cut, left fencer's cut just whiffs off miles away. But Anton's vertical, very vertical, foodlessness version um, does not. The point does not go off target if that happens. Uh, the point stays in the profile of the opponent. Um, preventing them from closing in without physically running onto the point of your sword. Sure. Do you think maybe that's why Ring X specifies you should aim for the weak of their sword? Maybe. Because if you're aiming, I've for never the, quite. If you're aiming for the weak against the hue, yeah. Then um, if they bind, it's not going to give you that much of a push, so you're not going to overcompensate much. Potentially. I've never quite understood why Ring specifies that your arms are like stretched up, which is a thing that at least some translations imply. Yeah, the the um I don't really understand how you're supposed to put your sword on the weak of their sword either in doing this action. Unless you're really doing a high like a high upper left ox squinter. Which, to be fair, would fit with the bit with in Ringek where it says that if they disengage, then you shoot the point long, because that implies the shield itself isn't shooting the point long. Could be. Yeah. I mean, the the other classic thing is that when somebody tries to, to shield how against somebody in Flug, they, they try and get that bind, and the other person just disengages, and it's double city. <laughs> so does it only specify it against somebody cutting in? Against Flug, it doesn't actually tell you to try and get a bind. Yeah. Are we going to talk about Flug now? Go for it. I guess we probably should. It's only in Dancing and Lose, so I don't have an opinion. Okay. Well, uh, wait, it's not in Ringic doesn't talk about breaking Flug with a shield how? He totally does. He mentions Ringic just says, and Hugh like this also when he stands against you in the plow. So but he, he does. doesn't have a specific paragraph for it. He, okay. He just puts it on the end of the thing against the cut, where he's like, oh yeah, and you can do this against Plow. We have to have an opinion on how he does it. Yeah, I guess. I need to. Anyway, <laughs> go on. So, I guess um, T already mentioned the important thing about this, which is that in no version is there any mention of a bind, which many, uh, pretty much every interpretation of this outside of the HEMA Discord that I've seen involves binding on their sword and shooting in. So what do we have to say about that? How does this work if there's no bind? Or should I just keep talking? So you can argue, arguably just throw the point straight in um, at, the, like, at the throat um, or at the upper chest, ideally at the right shoulder, uh, reprevent the sword. And then 
they have kind of a series of bad options. If they try to thrust in a high line where they have equivalent reach, your sword's already physically there, um, and they have to displace your sword somehow to do, to like hit you, um, which is going to be difficult uh, from a point forward position like Fluke, because mm-hmm. uh, they're trying to displace your strong with their weak. If they try to thrust on a low line where your sword isn't, then they're significantly outreached, and unless they're a lot taller with a much longer sword, they probably can't physically reach you. And then their third option is to parry, which is, you know, fine, whatever, you move on to the next stage. And you just do whatever you need to do uh, to finish the exchange from there. But you've kind of shut off the two two major options for a thrust from a fluke type thing, or a thrust which rises up to uh, shoulder height, or a thrust which stays at belly height. And the belly height thrust will probably be outreached, and the shoulder height thrust will probably be opposed by your strong. And the way it's set up kind of reminds me of Uberlaufen in the language that you're going to stab him above with your shield house, that he cannot reach you below. The Uberlaufen says that the higher um, settings upon outreach encounter the lower ones. And that lends some credence to the reach theory, that you're just going to stab him longer than he can stab you. Yeah. If you want to believe that... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I think that... That's an interesting idea in theory, but when it plays out with fetters, I think there's a lot of situations in which even if you are stabbing in above, they still have the option of stabbing you below and doubling. Hmm. It, even if like you're... Yeah, but Black has a bleeding headwind? <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> if you stab they can stab me below, head, but I have priority, so... <laughs> I, I I only bring that up because um, that's a uh, criticism that comes up a lot is if I do that, then they can just stab me at the same time. So I think there's a difference between them stabbing, ignoring your sword and stabbing you and them attempting an absetsum. If you're really staying very clearly on the center maximum reach line, you end up with a kind of distraser KDF sort of thing where the, the shield is basically sitting on the right angle. Yeah with maximum extension. And from there, it's very hard for them to thrust on the high line without displacing your sword. Which they can do, potentially. But, you know, every move has a counter. Right. But for them to deliberately thrust in the low line, they have to basically deliberately jump onto the point of your sword. And I'm not sure that's a move that is within the scope of the glosses. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically. I think it's also... Um... Kind of if you flip that situation around with walking into a sword. So I'll give a little spoiler. When we get to squinting to the, to the point, doing this shield howl against uh, long point, there is a bind at the sword. And I think the difference there is with the if they're in long point, if you don't bind at the sword, then you'll walk into their point. And if they're in flug, uh, their arms are shortened, their their sword is retracted. So you can just stab them without having to move their sword out of the way at all. Yeah. And the other thing with the long point one is that if you are if you see the shield as wanting to occupy that straight path, like that long point position, then it is very difficult for it to... It's very difficult for you to do that against long point without moving their sword out of that space, because their sword... Like, only one sword can be in that physical space. Objects can't pass through each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think against 
against long point is where the shield how really shines so i'm looking forward to that episode but i think we're probably getting close to wrapping up but the last thing that's kind of in my little uh list of questions i might want to talk about here is why is this an action that you'd use instead of zorn how right like tactically speaking what's the reason that i some dude comes and swings a sword at me why am i going to pick this instead of a zorn yeah well that's a again not this easy. kind of gets to what michael was saying earlier yeah um we we talked about all those like mechanical differences between uh you know how you're holding your hands when your your sword is inverted, so there's all that. If you look at uh, Ringek and Danzig, since he attacks with a cut, we're never attacking with a cut with its or how we're always attacking with the point. So uh, maybe there's a little bit more versatility there with as far as distances goes. You can use the squinter at a closer distance than you can at Zorn. Yeah, that definitely implies a difference a difference in distance to me. Right. One of my so the idea I've mentioned, I've mentioned a few idea a few times before this idea of like marching forward and doing various actions, the various five cut actions, depending on when and how they try to interrupt your advance. So you're closing distance systematically trying to get it there. And if they do various things at various points in that, you can use different actions. In this framework, the big thing where shield comes in is if they kind of like you start to march forward and they basically leap forward and try to throw a cut at you sort of explosively taking over the the timing of the action that's a kind of very big explosive action it tends to be a very big step and often the sword will lag behind in a big step like that which gives you an opening for the shield to land into especially the ring at shield to the right shoulder and it kind of that stuff goes it goes together nicely it lands well with a cut if they refuse their hands and do that same action a little bit more conservatively, you end up with the point in front and you can follow up with a thrust uh, to prevent them from changing through. And Zorn, you would instead do if they're cutting, kind of trying to cut the point in front of you while you're coming forward. So they're acting at a similar distance, but the way they're acting is different. In Zorn, they're staying a bit more reserved and getting their blade out there more. In Shield, they're kind of exploding inwards and the distance is collapsing more, but maybe their sword is further back and there's more of an opening to work into. Sure, would be the one of the differences I'd I'd identify. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. And um, also, I I would like to mention that there doesn't have to be huge differences. There can be overlap in um, in context between which which one you use, and it could just be a personal choice thing. You know, if you are good at, at squinters and you like doing them then do a squinter. If you like doing Torn how you can do that. So everything doesn't have to fit in its own perfect box of, of context. There can be some overlap. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, to me, the, the squinter is just like, it, it, it's a magic cut. Brilliant. I, I don't understand why it works, but it works. And I use it all the time. Now everybody knows the, the secret for winning sword fights, so it's a good way to wrap up. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been Mike Smorridge with Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and T.Q. Thank you for listening.